When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It is good to be with you, Ashley. I feel recovered from my my birthday this yeah. weekend. From, Do you feel wiser, older? Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, from the Super Bowl, um, someone already yeah someone commented that I spent the first episode of my 30s criticizing college kids and their newfangled robot delivery You weren't even systems. 30 yet at that point, so I can only imagine what's going to happen. Oh, just <laughs> wait. Old man yells at cloud in the sky is coming with a force All these right. upcoming seasons of Jesuitical. <laughs> and who are we talking to this week? So joining us this week to talk about religion and hip hop is Alex Nava. And Alex is a professor of religious studies at the University of Arizona and the author of a new book, Street Scriptures Between God and Hip Hop. And Alex teaches a course at the University of Arizona on religion and hip hop. So he is the perfect person to get into this topic with. Yeah. And he's steeped in uh, liberation theology specifically. So we talk about the connections between hip hop as a music genre and, and that specific strain of Catholic theology. So it's a great conversation. Stick around for it. Uh, but first, what are we drinking this week, Zach? This is our last drink before we go on our Lenten fast. Longtime listeners of the show will note that, you know, these 40 days where we normally have a, a cocktail or a beverage on the show to kind of just like lower the stakes, make it more conversational. During Lent, we we abstain from that. So uh, this is our last one. And we are drinking a French 75, which is uh, an, an homage to Mardi Gras, New Orleans. It's got uh, champagne, but you can use any type of bubbles in there. So Prosecco, Cava, whatever you've got on hand. Add a little elderflower liqueur, so St. Germain, um, and maybe a, just a smidge of lemon juice and a lemon peel for garnish. All right. Cheers. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And first, we just want to give a quick update on a story we brought to you last week on the situation in Nicaragua. So in last week's show, we discussed um, these four priests, two seminarians, and their lay cameraman who were sentenced to 10 years in prison in Nicaragua following what is widely regarded as a sham trial on charges of treason and spreading false information. Yeah, and this is part of the larger deteriorating situation of civil liberties in Nicaragua. Um, President Daniel Ortega has increasingly flexed some authoritarian muscles um, and the Catholic Church has been very critical of that and also been caught up in sort of the crackdown on it. Right. And so shortly after we recorded on February 9th, we learned that these churchmen and their lay companion were part of a group of 222 political prisoners who had been exiled by the regime. So they were stripped of their Nicaraguan citizenship and put on a plane to the United States where they will seek refuge. Yeah. And there's one notable exception to that group. On February 10th, um, an appeals court condemned Bishop Rolando Alvarez to 26 years in prison for similar charges. The bishop had been offered a seat on a plane, it's, it appears, um, and refused to kind of cooperate with that and really wanted to stay with his people. And as a result of that, he's going to be, for the time being, serving out that 26-year sentence. Right. And on Sunday, uh, Pope Francis publicly denounced the imprisonment of uh, Bishop Alvarez and the deportation of these uh, 222 other political prisoners. Uh, we mentioned last week that there were some critics of the Vatican for not speaking out more forcefully. You know, events like this show that there are things going on behind the scenes that we might not know about. <laughs> and yeah, for sure. So obviously, this is a developing story still. So you can follow along at americamagazine.org. And if there are more developments, we'll be sure to update you here. What's our next story, Zach? 
So next story, we're going to talk about the Super Bowl. Uh, not necessarily the game, but one of my favorite parts of the Super Bowl, which are the commercials. Um, you might have noticed that Jesus got a lot of airtime this year at the Super Bowl um, with the He Gets Us commercials. Ashley, could you just describe for someone who maybe wasn't watching or who has been living under a rock <laughs> what these commercials are and what they depicted? Yeah, so they're part of this broader He Gets Us campaign. This is uh, he being Jesus. Jesus gets us. And <clears throat> they had some they have some like short YouTube videos that have come out before the Super Bowl that try to reintroduce Jesus to a, uh, a increasingly secular population in the United States and a place where Christianity doesn't exactly have the best brand. It, it is seen by many people as as discriminatory, as polarizing, as uh, power hungry, power hungry, political. Mm -hmm. And so these uh, these commercials really aim to, you know, show the Jesus of the gospel to people who might not know anything about it. Yeah. So two commercials that were at the Super Bowl. First one was um, about being childlike. So it just had showed also we should say that all of these commercials have this sort of like sleek black and white uh kevin burns type mm -hmm. aesthetic that is, it looks really hip cool and trendy um but the childlike one depicts all these cute kids playing laughing having a good time and it sort of ends with this message of like jesus didn't want us to act like adults which i don't know feels like a good message everybody can get behind um but then there was like a much longer one too so that one was 30 seconds but then there was a 60 second one that felt every bit of 60 seconds i thought Right. And that one was called Love Your Enemies. It, again, sleek production, black and white photos, but very dramatic, showing depictions of of Americans screaming at each other in confrontations at protests. There's like Black Lives Matter. To, Allusions to Black Lives yeah, Matter. Yeah, to the COVID-19 yeah. fights over masking and things like that. And so it shows those images and then ends with, uh, with the line that, um, you know, Je the people you hate, Jesus loves. <laughs> he loves all of us. Um, so yeah, those were the two main ones. Another notable one I would say before the Super Bowl was one called Refugee that depicted um, a, a Latin American family clearly fleeing political violence in their home country coming to the border and then ends with the message that you know Jesus and his family were also refugees. So they, it isn't just like Jesus is nice. He's a nice guy. It is kind of tapping into modern questions and showing the relevance of the gospel to it. Right. Well, that's, I think, the idea behind, like, he gets us, like, the idea being that he he would understand what's going on in our life. He experienced human things, too. Before we get, you know, our opinions on it, we should say that it did cause quite a bit of controversy. Um, Pretty, pretty much across the spectrum, I, I would say that there was a fair amount of eye rolling in the room where I was watching the Super Bowl. People kind of, I don't know, I think for reasons you alluded to, don't take messages like this that seriously or that earnestly. Um, I saw that AOC tweeted that um, something tells me Jesus would not spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl ads to make fascism look benign. On the other side of the spectrum, Charlie Kirk, who's a Twitter provocateur on the right wing said that the advertisements were a pander to liberals um, and that the people behind it were woke tricksters. So it certainly enraged people <laughs> on both sides of the political spectrum, I think it's fair to say. All right. Well, I think that's what the gospel should do. So. <laughs> fair. Um, but we also, I, I posted um, our colleague Jim McDermott's article about this in the Jesuitical Facebook group, and I thought there was a fascinating discussion happening that um, Ashley and I didn't really weigh in on, um, but we're just kind of observing, knowing that we would be talking about it this week on the show. Um, I thought there were some really interesting points made, um, sort of for and against the advertisements. Right. So I think the first question or the first point of debate is, you know, who's funding this? Like what are there ulterior Where's the motives? Money Where's from? the money sure. coming from? Yeah, because uh 30 seconds in the Super Bowl costs 7 million dollars and if they had 90 seconds of ad, that's 21 million dollars. Um so we do uh, on the website it, it doesn't reveal uh who the main donors are, but we have learned that um, David Green, who is the billionaire founder of the arts and craft chain Hobby Lobby of Supreme Court fame, uh, had funded large portions of it. So I think some people who may object to the politics of um, the, the privately owned business Hobby Lobby and their kind of um, forays into our political Conservative debates. culture war yeah. and things like that. Um, you know, they... they are disinclined to just take these ads at face value. Yeah, and um, so that's one objection. The other is that you know, 
could you spend this money elsewhere, right? That, that, that's what AOC was getting at. Lots of people just sort of feel gross that anything associated with religion is partaking in the space of commerce and advertising where right next to like Chevrolet and Blue Moon and other big brand commercials. Um, curious what your thoughts were, both maybe just in general and then maybe replying to one of those objections. Yeah, I personally... Um... You know, I thought they were good commercials. They were well done and they achieved the goal of, you know, getting a wide audience to see Jesus in a different light than maybe they're used to. You know, if most people's view on the church is seeing the sex abuse crisis and Catholics fighting with each other, <laughs> like mm -hmm. that's we're not doing great advertising for Jesus. No. Um, so that the fact that there are people who want to do that, I I'm not going to just like reflexively denounce. And I I've never really bought into the money argument like we spend the church fed has a long history of building beautiful churches and um, supporting artists and spending money on things that are not direct service for the poor, you know, I see the reason for that. We're not a utilitarian religion. <laughs> like, no, for sure. Um, there, are, you know, I think the people often point to Jesus letting the woman wash his foot in very expensive uh, perfumed oil, uh, perfumed and one of his oil. disciples um, says, "You could have sold that and given yeah. it to the poor." You know, the bridegroom's here. You've got a party when the bridegroom is here. I, I tend to agree. I thought these were really good commercials, right? Um, if you, if I were sort of like had my blinders on, I had no idea who funded this, no idea what they were trying to get me to do. Just the the fact that it's proposing that we should all consider Jesus wants us to be more childlike and Jesus loves our enemies. Those are good messages in and of themselves, and there's not really an aggressive push to to follow up, right? So it like. It does lead to uh, a website that, you know, I think suggests churches that you could maybe go to, but I'm not even sure about that. No, and even on their website, they even talk about how they, they want to, one, reintroduce Jesus and to like, you know, look at the gospel through a modern lens to see what it can teach us. And not just Christians. They mentioned that they have, they want to have contributions and reflections from people who maybe aren't Christians, but think that Jesus is a strong moral guide. I think this is pure or not maybe pure because it's, you know, there's the Super Bowl. By the <laughs> Super Bowl. <laughs> but it's evangelization, not proselytism in my in my mind. Yeah, and I think, you know, we all have to, it's hard to be super high on your moral horse if you're watching the Super Bowl, I, I think. Um, also, I, we should say the work that we do here at America is not direct service to the poor. No. <laughs> like, and we have advertised what we do and we think what we do is important. For sure. I, you know, and in, in, in the like, this is a right-wing political operation. I, I just don't know if I totally agree with that. Like my first impression of this was earlier in the NFL playoffs when they did the Jesus is a refugee commercial, which I don't think is a particularly right-wing talking point. And for you know the NFL divisional round playoffs to hear a message that Jesus was a refugee, I think is pretty radical and a, and a good message to consider. So I, a lot of these are sort of stripped of their politics, but I don't think they are so completely, and they, and they do it in a way that I think provokes all of us. So I thought they did a good job. I thought these ads hit the mark, um, and our colleague Jim McDermott agreed. But if you are following this conversation, if this is you know if you're objecting to things that Ashley and I are saying, uh, I'd encourage you to go check out our Facebook group at facebook.com/groups/jesuitical, where other listeners are weighing in on the he gets us commercials. Joining us from Tucson is Alex Nava. Alex is a professor of religious studies at the University of Arizona and the author of Street Scriptures Between God and Hip Hop. Welcome to Jesuitical, Alex. Thanks. I appreciate the invite. Really excited to talk to you. I love talking music and religion, and so this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm wondering if we could maybe start off by defining a couple terms, though. Uh, always a good place to start. One of the claims that your book and the article in America that you've written for us is making is that um, hip hop is either like a, a form or an offshoot or an embodiment of 
of liberation theology, which before we get too far, I just was wondering if you could maybe explain what liberation theology is. That gets tossed around a lot, um, but I don't know if we've ever really defined it on this podcast super well. I think that in the 1960s and into the 1970s, that there was a shift in theology to like a growing self-awareness that theological voices and the theological conversation was dominated by European perspectives and ideas. And I think generally speaking, the shift in liberation theology was suddenly giving the mic to the voices of disenfranchised groups within the United States and around the world, but particularly in developing countries where massive degrees of poverty and political repression, racial injustice, and all forms of, of abuse were, were different than some of the concerns that many European theologians had. Many, In many cases, like the concern for a lot of European and North American theology was like confronting the threat of atheism or the challenge of the Enlightenment and modernity to, to theology. And I think um, in a very simple way that there was kind of a, that liberation theology represented a, a decentering of, of theology and just kind of allowing the voices of oppressed cultures and oppressed groups um, and like considering their perspectives on God and church and the human experience to be um, important and valuable. And ultimately it was just lending dignity to the voices of previously marginalized and ignored communities. And what were some of the insights that came from this kind of ground up theology? What were, what was, what was new that, or challenging to the way theology had been done previously? Yeah, I think it was just the awareness, like Gustavo Gutierrez like to say, and I wrote my dissertation on um, Gustavo Gutierrez. Can you give us a brief bio on who that is, where he's coming from? Gustavo Gutierrez is considered one of the fathers of liberation theology. And Gustavo Gutierrez is a Catholic priest, if you don't know, joined the Dominican order. Around the same time, though, James Cone, an African-American theologian, published uh, an important work as well. So they were like around 1969, 1970. And Gustavo Gutierrez liked to say, instead of just focusing on the non-believers, the New Testament was deeply concerned with the non-persons, like those groups that have been dehumanized and and that Christianity is has to be a response to individuals and, and communities that have been like traditionally overlooked and, and ignored. Like a lot of these issues are totally ignoring the the realities of like the history of the Middle Passage, of slavery, of um, the abuse and like the massacre of indigenous populations throughout the Americas. And so it was like trying to give us eyes to see those individuals and groups, you know, treated as as non-humans. You know, it, it one of the things that like kind of shocked me in college was when a professor first pointed out to me that, you know, the church says that God has a preferential option for the poor. Um, and, you know, initially I was like pretty, I don't know if I was like, don't, doesn't God love everybody? What, what does that mean? Uh, is that is that coming out of this tradition of liberation theology? And, and maybe what are some other like core Christian beliefs that uh, sort of feed into that? You know, one of the things that I think um, liberation theology got a really unfair reputation for is its seeming alliance with leftist political movements, including Marxism. Gustavo Gutierrez worked in the field of psychology um, as a graduate student. And he says, nobody ever thinks of like, because I've done some work on Freud, nobody calls me a Freudian, but because I touch on aspects of Marxism, I'm, I'm suddenly a Marxist. Mm -hmm. And I think for him, liberation theology and including the preferential option for the poor is ultimately grounded in the scriptures and in the theological tradition. If you look at the narrative of Exodus, which is a crucial story, a crucial narrative in many liberation movements, it seems quite clear that 
um, God sends Moses as an emissary. He sends him as a prophet to lead the Israelites out of bondage. And so it's very much God taking the side of the slave, God taking the side of, of the Israelites, um, as opposed to like taking the side of the Pharaoh and the ruling classes. He clearly takes the side of the dispossessed. And you see this obviously throughout the New Testament as well, that Jesus um, is very much concerned about the plight of the poor. It comes out in parable after parable, especially in Luke's gospel, where it's he's very, very insistent that, you know, blessed are the poor and that we meet God in the face of the poor, in the face of the beggar, of the face of, of the needy, that God is present and that we're being judged in, you know, the famous last judgment scene in Matthew 25 that, you know, I was hungry, you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, I was a stranger, you welcomed me, um, I was in prison, you you visited me. So it's clearly, and when you did this for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did this for me. So clearly Jesus is identifying with the outcasts. Yeah. So in your book, you, you talk about you know, you're you're on the academic track becoming a theologian and you're a big fan of hip hop. But for a while, it didn't seem like those things overlapped. So I'm wondering when that insight came to you that, you know, hip hop can be treated in a, like a theological manner. You know what it was? Um, I So I was in graduate school. This was um, like the late 90s. And I stumbled into this lecture. It was this lecture by I had not I'd never heard of Michael Dyson, but he was giving a talk on hip hop or something like God and hip hop. And it made me pay attention more because I grew up listening to hip hop. Um, like back in the day, my brother was a B-boy and he had a, a group and I, I remember following him around and watching him compete against others, other groups, mainly here in Tucson. I was an avid listener but again, I, I, I tended to think that the world of academic theology had nothing to do with my musical interests. So they were totally separate paths. And that lecture started me to think about the possibilities of, of hip hop and the richness of it, the, the different forms of it, the poetic qualities of hip hop alone, the rhyme techniques, the the way in which it evolved um, early on, there were really simplistic rhymes and end rhymes, and especially in the 1990s, there was an explosion of different voices and different perspectives and different flows and um, different ways in which they would rhyme and the social issues, the issues of inequality and injustice in, in, in American life and how it's affected many um uh, minority groups and that hip hop in that case has been giving as kind of what I said about liberation theology, like giving the mic to previously underrepresented groups and unheard groups, uh, groups that have been invisible in, in American life and letting them speak, um, letting them tell you about their, their struggles and their dreams that their, their hopes, their, their triumphs, um, their sorrows, you know, and then, of course, you know, there's so much more the issues of gender, which hip hop is a very troubled relationship with the issue of, of gender. There's definitely a lot of sexism and misogyny in, in, in the culture. Um, but it, it opens up a window into so many things, the spirituality of it. Um, I think around that time with Michael Dyson, I started to pay more attention to the way in which rappers would grapple with God. And that trend is, has only continued. So my class has actually gotten more and more relevant because after the 2000s, I, I, all these artists came on the scene that made it possible to really kind of extend that di discussion on, on spirituality and religion. So, Are there particular ways in which hip hop either, like are there subjects or common themes that get alluded to in hip hop that might be unique to, to the genre as opposed to say like, I don't know, like a Bruce Springsteen, someone who maybe talks about God sometimes? If you compare the history of hip hop um, to other genres like rock and, rock and roll and what became like rock music, for example, 
one thing that stands out is that there's a greater inclination to wrestle with like spiritual topics and and that to to invoke god that many of these artists are invoking god at different points i would say with somebody like tupac um i've often said that he's very much like he was like a job figure he was sincerely wrestling with god um that god was like a lifeline to to somebody like tupac he's clearly struggled with the problem of evil um in some cases it's very much like where are you god in the presence of people suffering on this earth especially uh again a lot of disenfranchised groups and um so that tupac challenges god and confronts god um but he's never without god but also just very much kind of in keeping with aspects of 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 the black church that the themes of like social justice and racial equality that kind of religion gives them respect and dignity you describe um hip hop music as having a, a message of quote defined through celebration which I, I thought was a great way to describe it can you make the connection for us for like the social reality that hip hop is coming out of and and how that kind of gives it a prophetic nature um as a genre yeah yeah i think um that there's a lot of like affinities between the contemporary rapper the contemporary mc and the figure of the prophet the classic prophet in the bible was very much like centered around the spoken word that they would receive god's word and um proclaim that word to to the israelites and it usually consisted of both criticism rebuke um denunciation of current inequalities of injustices um the mistreatment of of the poor and the widow and the orphan and, and the stranger and i think that in many ways the mc is become kind of like a prophetic figure in that they have often been kind of a a voice of communities that have been long ignored in american life like to just take one particular issue that the issue of like police violence and police brutality i mean these issues that we're struggling with in 2023 um the genre of hip hop has been like speaking and crying out on these issues since the very beginning um in one of the early songs by grandmaster flash uh, one of the most influential and famous songs in the history of hip hop um the message i mean if you actually watch that video I, at the end there's a scene in which the police kind of rush on the scene and you have these uh young black men in at the street corner in in New York and the police are rushing on them and throwing them in their cars and harassing and abusing and so I, from the very beginning hip hop was um representing the the struggles of the project dwellers and those caught in you know violent circumstances and circumstances that um that american politicians and the american government neglected and they were pointing out the the obscenity of like the way in which the american government would al allowed these massive inequalities and injustices and different judicial treatments of marginalized black and brown groups um and so you know hip hop has has always been that prophetic in that regard these issues are religious issues like that's one thing that i really emphasize in my classes we we don't we tend to think now of social justice as as almost like it's a secular form or it's a political movement or it's a it's a political movement it's a secular commitment of some sort but i mean it's the heart of the biblical tradition um and so it's a religious concern it's a it's a religious issue and that the church is neglected you know in many ways not necessarily like you know as we talked about some liberation theologians but you know church on the ground in a lot of places or in how it's been represented in media has neglected a lot of these issues 
One question I have for you, Alex, is that a sort of dismissive or common attitude of a, a casual observer um, is that you know hip hop is is too violent, yeah. it's too sexualized, and I think there's a lot of uh, racial dynamics going on right there, to say the very least. Yep. What would you say to someone who says like, "Oh, they, this can't possibly be a, a fertile ground for for spiritual reflection because the sacred and the profane just don't mix." I, I've given like several lectures over the years on, on the topic, and I remember being surprised in certain contexts. I, I remember one person quoted me lyrics from 3-6 Mafia. It's a, a particular group. They're from the South. They can be deeply problematic, deeply sexist, again, misogynistic, really. And, you know, um, other groups in hip hop have been historically homophobic. Um, and there's been a kind of like celebration of material wealth and success. Success is defined by one's toys and one's possessions. And so that kind of materialism, I, I'm just as critical of that as anyone else as a Catholic theologian. I'm critical of, of that aspect of, of hip-hop culture. All my argument is, is that it's preposterous to say that that's the entirety of hip-hop. There are rappers in Chile to the day that are putting the, like, the voice of indigenous groups, like, of their struggles. They're putting them on wax, as they say. Like, they, um, there are people in Africa, in the Middle East, in Russia. Hip-hop's become a voice of opposition in Russia um, in so many instances. So, so it's preposterous just to say that they're all repeating the same thing. And I, I think any genre is filled with like good and bad. And there's a lot of bad. There is a lot of bad in, in, in the culture of hip-hop. There's a lot of beauty as well. A lot of creativity. Even more than like uh, some of the the things that you know we we critique and as as Catholics, I think people just object to the idea that there can be a religious message in something that isn't rated G and has totally squeaky clean music, and that there could be like any type of storytelling. Yeah, like as if they've forgotten that the entire like most of the Bible is so yeah. has some explicit content in it. it, it you know, does that? Yeah. Do you feel like there's something behind that too? Yeah, that's that's a great point. And then if you look at like some of the abuses of the concept of God. I mean, I think Christians have to look at themselves for how many times that the name of to justify capitalism, to justify the gospel of prosperity. And I love the story of the Buddha where he's a privileged person. He's born into an aristocratic family and he's sheltered as a child. And for the first time, his path to wisdom as he finally begins to be awakened um, was when he he's he moves outside of the walls of the palace and he experiences suffering he experiences like people that like old age he experiences people that are sick and dying and the experience of suffering jars him and it eventually leads him to search for a path like he's searching for the cause of suffering and university campuses are very much like palaces. And I think that the metaphor and hip hop could kind of be a schooling in like the realities outside the ivory towers, like in the streets, the struggles, the, the injustices, the, the, the nastiness, the, the uncleanliness of life in, in some of those circumstances. I wonder if we could focus uh, on on one artist just to make this more concrete for for listeners. So maybe uh, you have a you have a chapter on Kendrick Lamar. So maybe could you give us an introduction to his theology? Kendrick Lamar. He was from Compton, and he was definitely, I think, already from a very early age, ready a kind of precocious young man. He underwent a transformation, a religious conversion um, to Christianity um, around kind of in between the, the time of his mixtapes and Good Kid, Bad City. 
And you could see it in his albums after that. There's a greater preoccupation with God. And it comes through in each album, Good Kid, Mad City. Um, after that, To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn. Um, there's very much a theological element to every single album. But on To Pimp a Butterfly, he tells this story of when he was in South Africa and he encounters this beggar. The, the name of the song is How Much a Dollar Cost. And it's really a remarkable song because Kendrick Lamar puts you in the driver's seat of his consciousness. He's thinking that he's dismissing the beggar. He's just going to buy drugs or alcohol with the money I give him. Um, he smells. Um, all of these things that his, his fears and his dismissal. Towards the end, it's suddenly revealed that this beggar is the face of Christ, um, the Messiah. And he uses the word, the nerve of Nazareth. And even in his more recent album, Mr. Moral, he talks about experiencing God in the, the flowers and the trees in, in nature. So that's kind of like a new spin that I don't think he's ever like discussed in previous albums. One of the things I love about Kendrick is the like the art of memoir that's involved because um, so much of it is just like narrative self-reflection storytelling, which I feel like is a is definitely like a spiritual or Christian. I don't know if it's necessarily Christian, but it's certainly like a, a spiritual way of recollecting and and telling stories. You know, going back to Augustine's Confessions, which I know some people have compared some of Kendrick's albums to in, in, in its ability to do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, there is he's deeply introspective. He's never ever considers himself as like um, this pure example of that everybody should emulate. He bears his soul, and his soul is filled with like good and evil, and he bears it to the world. Um, his his shortcomings, his failings, his fears, um, and that you know that's an issue that I would say since around 2010 that's really intensified in the culture of hip hop. And it's not surprising that it started happening around then because we live at a time period where mental health is much more in the air. But I think since then you see so many more artists um, than ever before wrestling with mental and spiritual struggles um, Re wrestling with anxiety and depression and like in old school hip-hop 80s and 90s that was a sign of weakness that was a sign of vulnerability yeah don't talk about your don't talk about your feelings like you sort of talk about the outside world instead of what's what's going on inside because you were seen as soft if you do that so mm -hmm. um if you want to be hard and and again especially in the genre of like gangster rap was very much like that notion but there's aspects of that in tupac there's aspects of that in um scarface from from the ghetto boys um in fact he was the the author of one of the classics in the history of hip-hop um my mind is playing tricks on me and he's having a really intense dialogue with himself and he's struggling with depression in the song and somebody like kendrick lamar that's very much part of him where he's like he shows a, a soul that's evolving, I think, that's that's growing um, throughout his different albums. And even on, on Mr. Moral, like he admits of like his past bigotry, his um, some of his homophobia. Hip hop can be confessional and it can be actually deeply important for young people. So this was like completely by chance. I was running over there earlier today to, to the university to get these headphones. And I ran into a student who had my class. He told me how much he loved my class. And he was telling me specifically that he was going through like mental like struggles and that he found like through my class, he, he started listening to um, Kendrick Lamar's Mr. Moral very carefully. He said it deeply helped him and it deeply moved him. And he felt less alone, he says, that if, if these issues were like coming from Kendrick Lamar, 
that he related to Kendrick Lamar. Um, I thought that was really extraordinary. I was like, good timing um, for Jesuitical too, too, that you have this um, young man who, you know, found almost like a form of like counseling through, through hip hop. So I, I think that's where kind of a clear example of the spiritual value. Well, I mean, that album in particular, the the cover is Kendrick Lamar's wearing a crown of thorns in like a image of the Holy Family. Like, so it's, it is pretty evident right. that, you know, that it's on his mind, certainly as a, as a rapper. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for talking to us about liberation and theology and hip hop. Um, we do have one final question for you uh, that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person living or dead catholic or not fictional or real who would it be and why i would say bartolome de las casas um gustavo gutierrez wrote a beautiful book about las casas he was if you don't know uh, a dominican the dominicans have uh, always meant a lot to me we'll allow it on this jesuit podcast <laughs> Just this once. <laughs> I liked it, St. Ignatius too, but okay. um, the notion of God in all things is ultimately, I guess my book was really about that God is in all things. And that I, I think in the culture of hip hop, again, I repeat, there's good and bad, but there's so much the beautiful, um, not only in the lyrics, but the music in the dance in the tradition of graffiti writing and that God can be present in, in all things. And I think that's ultimately to end with Las Casas is, and why he should be canonized, is that Las Casas understood that God is in all things. And he saw that God was present among the persecuted indigenous people. Um, so there's that famous line that I love of his, that he says, in the face of the afflicted Indians of the Americas, Jesus Christ is beaten, scourged, and crucified not once, but thousands of times. Hmm, wow. And when is he writing? In the 16th century. Okay. Well, he's on. He's officially servant of God, so he's on the way, but I'm pretty sure a Jesuitical canonization push will probably push him. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Alex, thanks again for, for joining the pod. Uh, one more time for our listeners, the, he is the author of the book, Street Scriptures Between God and Hip Hop, which you can find wherever books are sold. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Zach and Ashley. Appreciate it. Work hard, get dope. I can't get no sleep, which make my life more simple. Now's inside these shoes so I don't stomp by tiptoe. Fell a thousand times, I still I roll no limp, though. But I wouldn't trade a thing for what I have. I go hard, do what I need to make it last. They say the good die young, I hope I'm bad. Join Ave Explorers on a journey into the desert with Father John Burns and his book, Return, a guided Lent journal for prayer and meditation. On the Ave Explorers podcast, host Katie Prejean McGrady and special guests will help you reorient your mind and heart this Lent so you can more fully experience the joy of Easter. Podcast guests include Sister Miriam James Heidland, Father Augustino Torres, Mark Hart, Rocky McCormick, and more. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. All right, it's time for parish announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, what do we have this week? First, we have a new Patreon supporter that we want to give a big thank you to. That's John Dealey. 
Thank you for contributing to our community here and to everyone who does so at patreon.com slash americamedia. Yeah, and just wanted to give a quick update. So I mentioned before that um, I'll be traveling with America Media's pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Um, a couple of people have sent in prayer requests. If, if there's any way that I can bring prayers of yours to the place where Jesus walked and did his public ministry, um, please shoot me an email. Um, you can do that at jesuitical at americamedia.org or at my email is edavis at americamedia.org. Um, also for the Patreon community, I'm going to be posting a few times just a couple updates about some things I'm seeing. Um, I'll, I'll write a little reflection here and there about uh, different spots we're going to. So I'll be in and around Galilee and Jerusalem. So if you want to follow along to that, you can sign up, as Ashley mentioned, at patreon.com slash americamedia. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, what do we have, Zach? Uh, believe it or not, Lent is coming up. This is the last episode of this podcast before Lent. So um, I thought it would be a good chance to talk about um, maybe ways that we're preparing. Um, and I was thinking about sort of this I, I get to this point every Lent, um, and I'm actually kind of early this year. Normally, I don't start to think about this <laughs> until Ash Wednesday. Uh, but what am I? What do I want to do? What do I want to give up? What extra thing do I want to do to try to uh, grow closer to God throughout the season? Um, and I was reading a piece that we have at America by a Jesuit named Joe Laramie that is sort of suggesting that that you know what should I give up for Lent is like the last question we should ask. Um, Meaning it's not something that we should avoid asking, but sort of what's behind the desire to give something up for Lent. And I feel like this is a classic Ignatian trick to look like, okay, you want to do this thing, but what is the underlying desire behind that? So you might say that I want to, I'm going to give up Netflix for Lent, or I, I'm going to give up uh, podcasts for Lent. It's like, well, okay, but but why? Like, what's the purpose of that? Are you Are you looking to have more quiet time for prayer. Okay, what's what's the what's the desire behind that? Why do you want more quiet time for prayer? Um, I want to focus on my relationship with God in in this way, uh, which is I thought was really useful because I'm always trying to just like pile on things. I'm a do first, ask questions later kind of person. Um, I don't know if you what what your experience has been trying to go through this discernment process. Is this normally? Do you start with what do I want to give up or what's something I want to work on? I. Definitely am guilty of asking what I need to give up. Um, and so, I, yeah, I also found this uh, article really helpful because so he he kind of riffs on the John F. Kennedy quote, ask not what you can do your, for your country, but what your country can do for you. And his version, ask not what you can give up for Lent, but what Lent can do for you. Um, and I found that a helpful framing, like kind of in a way fast forwarding, like where do I want to be at the end of these 40 days? And what is my deep desire for um, for my spiritual growth over that time? And then working backwards to like, okay, what is the thing I can commit to doing or giving up to, to actually get to that point at the end of the 40 days? Well, and like the answer should not be, I, and this is where I feel like Lenten practices differ from like New Year's resolutions, because like, it's not that if you give up chocolate, you want to be less addicted to chocolate at the end of Lent, right? That, I mean- I don't know. That could be a goal, and maybe that's like a. a I first feel like that stage. is what I usually. So I very often have just given up various food items and been like, okay, whenever I crave that food item, I'll think of Jesus suffering, <laughs> and that was like as deep as it got. And so it was more just like, okay, give something up, it'll force me to think about Jesus, and not really looking at, you know, where am I right now in my spiritual life? Am I, am I being, you know, overly scrupulous? Am I being kind of lazy? Am I where where am I? And how can Lent kind of get me back on the path I want to be on? Um not to put you on the spot and I'll go first so you can think about it. Um but one thing I'm thinking about doing is uh trying to like transcribe um one of the gospels like I'm like a medieval monk basically like so taking I, I'm gonna go with the shortest one probably so the gospel <laughs> Mark. of Mark. Yep. Um and just like taking time throughout the season of Lent to literally like hand write um, some of the gospel and, you know, to follow in the spirit of why am I doing that? I feel like a, I've not really, I don't often try to encounter the gospels, like start to finish. That's sort mm -hmm. of not usually something I do. I take it piecemeal kind of like we do at mass. Um, and also like, I'm going to be, since I'll be traveling throughout the Holy land, I'll be thinking about these things. Um, but behind that, I just want to like get closer to Jesus himself, like, and get more comfortable 
with praying with and to the person of Jesus. Because uh, sometimes I find it easier to pray to God the Father or God, you know, the the Godhead of the Trinity rather than the personal incarnation of God. So that's what I'm going to be doing this Lent. I will continue thinking about that, but <laughs> I feel like what, what you're saying kind of connects back to what we were talking about last week in terms of like the means of communication and how that can you know, aid your prayer life or not, depending on what you're most comfortable with. So I love the idea of uh, a written practice. Yeah, that, since like uh, oftentimes we are writing, but yeah. it's uh, oftentimes a riff on what's already been written. But I feel mm-hmm. like the, the, you know, just even, I haven't decided if I'm going to handwrite or type yet. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if I know how to handwrite things anymore. I certainly won't do it in cursive. Yeah. No, the thing I've been thinking about is a constant theme in my struggle to be <laughs> better at praying is, is, creating more space for silence. Um, and so that very much connects to my podcast listening habits. So I'm not I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be. I don't think I'm going to completely give up listening to podcasts, but like maybe it'll be only listen to podcasts when I'm exercising and the rest of the time, no podcasts. <laughs> and because and so when doing the practice that Father Laramie. Um, yeah. Why do you want to have more silence? Yeah. Would be the question, right? Be, yeah. So like I think the question is, you know, there are things I don't want to, questions I don't want to answer, things I don't want to think about, parts of my faith that are like scary to like just sit with for a long time. All right. Well, listeners, I uh, want to encourage, suggest, maybe go through this practice, like uh, start with like, what do you want to, what do you want from Lent? And then sort of build the what I'm going to give up from there. Um, let us know what that process is like. Uh, shoot us an email. Um, again, it's jesuitical at americamedia.org. A couple of you sent in um, playlists that you would share with Jesus, which we suggested last week as a, as a possible prayer practice. So huge shout out uh, and thank you to those of you that did that and look forward to hearing what you're giving up. I'll ask in the Facebook group too. So be ready, everybody. All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.